Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Professor Wolf, will you please stop that? Stop what, Dr. Hill? You know exactly what. We're very close to a breakthrough in our study of the microbial treatment of kitchen refuse with enzyme-producing thermophilic bacteria from giant panda feces. But you're slowing me down by being all, you know... I'm I'm sorry, Doctor, but I, I don't know. What exactly are you referring to? You know. You come in here and you've... Well, you've totally got it going on with your ninnies and so forth. And the intent, Professor Wolf, is to make me ramish and humpy. I'm not following you. How am I supposed to think about the microbial treatment of kitchen refuse with enzyme-producing thermophilic bacteria from giant panda feces when you're deliberately driving me crazy with thoughts of roasting the broomstick? I beg your pardon? Uh, a rumple in the baloney patch. I never heard of it. A trip up the Rhine? The disappearing cane trick? Mm, no, no idea at all. Having a bit of summer cabbage? The four-legged frolic? A horizontal refreshment? Oh, you want to have sex with me? No, 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 no. You want to have sex with me. And it's an agonizing distraction. I can feel your eyes like a laser boring holes in my bird's eggs and my windward passage. I promise you are wrong. I have one interest, and that is of the microbial treatment of kitchen refuse with enzyme-producing thermophilic bacteria from giant panda feces. Uh, are you quite sure? Unwaveringly so. Not the least bit interested in, you know, doing a dive in the dark with yours truly? No. Is it my, my clothes? I've got some sportier outfits at home. That's not it. I've just started doing sit-ups. I'm off cake, too. Back to work now, Dr. Hill. I never dreamed you could be so cruel. Today on our show, I'm stopping this accent, the dramas of the scientist who is blinded by women, the NAACP leader who forgot she wasn't black, and the female goalie who forgot soccer isn't violent. And now he's resigning from his post as president of Japanese Americans for Huckabee, Colin McEnroe. You know, my parents raised me as a Japanese kid. I just, you know, I, I, this is the first I knew, really. So, yes, we have sort of a, a bunch of interweaving topics today on the nose, and I think we can, we'll be sort of diving in and out of all of them. So I'm going to tell you what they all are in just a second, but let me first introduce who's here. Teresa Kramer is here. She is one of the founders of The Cut, an online magazine for the increasingly disgruntled young adult population <laughs> of Connecticut. Uh, uh, and uh, Irene Papoulos, who is not increasingly disgruntled. She is a professor at Trinity College and for from Trinity, Trinity Cine Studio, James Hanley. Um, and so let's uh, say what these things are. So what, we've got sort of four things that we think will kind of interplay. But we're going to begin um, with our kind of ro our Rosetta Stone, which is this essay by Eleanor Burkett, or Burkett, uh, a feminist scholar and journalist uh, who wrote in the New York Times, um, What Does It Mean to Be a Woman? What, what, I, think that's, I think that's what the title was. But so it, it's an essay in response to comments, especially from Caitlyn Jenner, all 
episodes of The Nose from now on will involve Caitlyn Jenner <laughs> in some way, um, saying that basically, you well, no, she's always been a woman because she thinks like a woman. She feels like a woman. There are certain ways in which she is just unmistakably a woman, that there are people who feel like women and people who feel like men, that there's this and think like men or think like women, that it's, it's this kind of binary thing, which is a concept that many feminists have been at war with for a really long time. Anyway, I'm just sketching all of these things out and then we'll sort of, we'll go one by one or we'll link them all together. We'll also be talking a little bit about as the um, intro referenced, Tim Hunt. Tim Hunt is a Nobel Prize winning biochemist who uh, in addressing a conference, which I think was actually on diversity in the sciences uh, in uh, Korea, um, said that, uh, that he had a problem with women in the lab because uh, he said, let me tell you about my, yes, it was. No, it was actually a Monday at the World Conference of Science Journalists in South Korea. He said, let me tell you about my trouble with, with girls. Three things happen when they are in the lab. You fall in love with them. They fall in love with you. And when you criticize them, they cry. Well, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, no. So a lot of people did argue with that and had a real problem with it. Um, a third topic will be Rachel Dolezal. I think I'm saying her name right, but I'm not 100% sure. She uh, is the president of the Spokane area chapter of the NAACP. Uh, she is married to an African-American man. She has four uh, African-American siblings. Uh, but she herself appears, at least by some people's lights, people who feel that race is, race is also kind of binary uh, and not just socially constructed, that she's not really African-American, that she's kind of been deceiving people about this and that has cost uh, her uh, years of genuineness and also uh, quite a bit of money on hair products. She has uh, very lovely curls that I apparently she's not entitled to. Some people say. I'm not saying that. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the argument that there's sort of been a double standard applied to um, U.S. soccer goalie Hope Solo. Hope Solo involved in kind of a domestic violence incident. Uh, one that it certainly involved violence against members of her family, although not her immediate partner or anything like that. She uh, has not suffered the kinds of consequences that sometimes the sports establishment in America at large wants to want to see levied against male athletes, especially uh, NFL football players. So all of those things are on the table, uh, but we'll start we'll start with Eleanor Burkett or Burkett. Um, and um, so I don't even know who wants to go first, but um, Irene, I will make you go first. Um, <laughs> so this is an essay, really, and it does feed off um, Larry Summers' often, I think, misquoted uh, alleged contention that women's brains work differently than men's and therefore they're not as adept at, at, at STEM kinds of stuff. And the Caitlyn Jenner and Chelsea Manning both kind of chiming in and saying that the reason that they um, had to make this transition was because that they – it's in terms of some mental and emotive state, were, were women, they thought like women, they felt like women. And Eleanor, who's been long at the barricades, um, didn't really like that idea very much. And do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, or? emphasis on the long, because she's been criticized for being one of those aging, one of those bitter old aging feminists. But uh, the, the quote that I pulled out, um, Caitlyn Jenner's idea of a woman, a cleavage-boosting corset, sultry poses, thick mascara, and the prospect of regular girls' nights of banter about hair and makeup. So her criticism is that the, the, um, the, the parameters of what a woman means, as reflected in Caitlyn Jenner's, especially the picture on Vanity Fair, et cetera, on the, uh, is way too reductive, and it's the very thing that feminists were fighting against. And um, so maybe we could get into the criticism of it in a minute, but I think, you know, the, the, I, I can't help, I, I identify with her as somebody who's like, you know, a little younger than her, but not that much younger than she is, and who has been, you know, raised in feminist theory, et cetera, et cetera. It's not so much that we shouldn't, you know, it's not so much, she's not so much 
criticizing Caitlyn Jenner, I would say, as much as the idea that if you know, like to be a woman, you have to look like this. Right, but I don't think it's look like this. I actually, I, I, I question. I mean, that's one part of it. Yeah. But but really, I think the thing that she's objecting to the most is the argument that there are people who are born with thoughts and feelings that are spe- specifically woman and thoughts and feelings that are specifically men. And she uh, she you know, quotes Gina Rippon, a neuroscientist, who says you can't pick up a brain and say that's a girl's brain or that's a boy's brain. The differences, Eleanor says, between male and female brains are caused by the drip, drip, drip of the gendered environment. In other words, I think it's not so much the hair and the makeup and all that kind of stuff, although that's in there. But what she's really saying is she objects to this binary understanding that you are born something and you think a certain way and you feel a certain way and that you can be trapped in the wrong body because your thoughts and feelings are, yeah, although that to me, that's the heart of, of Caitlyn Jenner's and many transgendered people's arguments, exactly right. that. So and it's, it's tricky because we all criticize, she points out, we all criticize Larry Summers for saying, you know, women can't think a certain way. So it's like, okay, if we're, if we're going to reject the concept of women's brains versus men's brains, then why are we embracing Caitlyn Jenner's idea that she needed to be a woman, which was completely different from being a man? Who wants to go next? I, I, I just don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> I, to me, I mean, this situation of, of really sort of, uh, first of all, you start with a background where it's a matter of power to me. Uh, like you look at the absurd situation right now, still now, that women get paid less than men for doing the same job. There are very real sort of you know divisions in society that 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 are bad here. They're worse in other parts of the world. They're better in some places. But that with that background, <clears throat> I'm not sure that you can really claim territory, saying um, you know that 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 there is a kind of orthodoxy that lies behind it. I just don't. I I just don't think it's there. I mean, for Caitlyn Jenner, uh, Caitlyn Jenner has chosen a particular path to express a certain feeling, and you could say, well, okay, these are stereotypical things, you know, the feelings of a woman and so on. But if you think about just the physical structure of the human body, people are born with all kinds of variations, including hormonal structure. There are plenty of people who might be completely sort of feeling they and and, the, and are raised as women or raised as men who have um, sexual, uh, physical sexual organs that are confused or different. I wouldn't use that. I don't want to use that word confused, but they're just different. What about a hermaphrodite, a true hermaphrodite, for example? I mean, there just isn't a formula here, but what these discussions to me are about and the anger is about is really what lies in power. And, and it's, it's a conversation about power. And that, I think, is why I found Larry Summers' comments um, his comments have revolved really around power and whether people could actually be um, uh, not as equipped to hold power because of their very nature. Like somebody, uh, like like for instance, the the British professor, you know, is sort of I- implying that really that that okay, we got to get rid of these girls because they're distracting us men from from our work. And it's all an expression of power, and that to me is where it lies. And the rest of it is kind of like. 
I wouldn't say window dressing, but it's 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 just um, it's kind of noise to me. I want to hear Teresa particularly on some of the pushback that's coming against this essay. But I want to say two things. First of all, if I liked Larry Summers better, I would actually correct people's impressions of what he said because he's <laughs> pr- pretty much almost universally misquoted about this. But then I, I really don't care that much. Uh, oh come I, on! So what did? He, but it was something about women's brains, right? Well, he didn't say women's brains. What, yeah. what he actually did say. I mean, this doesn't really matter. It's now sort of a placeholder for a kind of thinking that really does exist. Yeah. What he said was. Was that um, that women that when you test for math skills, what what you see is that women exhibit less variation in in their abilities than men. So that implicitly, and this has actually been borne out by a certain amount of research. The research I don't think is about the inborn brain differences. It's just sort of once again that drip 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 drip. But but mm-hmm. that basically, I mean, to boil it down and make it easy, um, there are going to be more high performing men and and more low-performing men in math when women are going to cluster closer to the middle. I mean, this is, this is it's just a very general statistical kind of spatter pattern, but that's the way that it works. It's, so for some reason or other, there's less variation in women's math skills. Uh, and he was sort of pointing that out. But that, my, my question about that is, why would he point that out? What's his reason for pointing well, it out? He really was a hit at a conference on diversity in the sciences that was supposed to be addressing the problem that there weren't enough women in the sciences. <laughs> so it was kind of a stupid thing for him to bring up. Right. But anyway, let's get back to Burkett. So You've been reading some of the pushback against it, right? Right. So, uh, you know, the minute I read that, I was like, oh, people are going to be mad. They're just going to be really mad about this. And, the, and, <laughs> and, and But I think a lot of the anger comes from a complete misunderstanding of what she was trying to say because I read it as a fight against gender binaryism and it has nothing to do – and. And, you know, I started reading about people who identify more as genderqueer and sort of nothing, you know, somewhere in between. They don't want to be, they don't identify mm-hmm. as male or female. And you, and which for whatever reason just seems more, I don't know, it just registers with me somehow more. That totally. Because, um, because you, you so if you're going from be feeling trapped by one set of uh, sort of gender norms, why make this complete and total switch to now just trapping yourself by some other set of gender norms? So you agree with her critique? On points, on points, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, I mean... See, we we want to have it both ways, I think. Well, yeah. the, I think, <laughs> I think well, that's true. I think part of the problem here, too, is there's this longstanding animosity between so-called radical feminists and trans trans people but mostly trans women because radical feminists refuse to just accept them as women and in sort of their private spaces and you know no you can't stay in the dorms with us because you're not really a woman kind of thing which is sort of just cruel and unfair and well, not some radical yeah i mean i don't yeah. think you can say all radical feminists well i i say so called radical a, feminists cuz we're talking about really sort of a fringe element right. that identifies this way and i don't i don't think the people in the middle are really having this right, fight. So it's not really about it disliking someone or not accepting them as someone. It's just like, hey, this is an issue you're thinking about a lot anyway. Clearly, gender matters to you. And so could you help us sort of not feel trapped by oh, these well, same... I, I, th- I think she's stumbled onto, or, or stumbles the wrong word, but she's found a really interesting collision point here, you know, because these are both really very real points of view. So the Eleanor Burkett point of view is... 
the, you, if you pick 10 men and assign them to this particular, uh, some particular task and you pick 10 women and assign them to the same task, it, it is absurd to say that somehow or other the women will function differently in that task because they're women, because they think and feel differently. They have different sensibilities. They'll do the task differently. She's been fighting her whole adult life against that idea. Um, and, and what – and so that's very real, and I think it's a good, valid point, and it's sort of you know one of the places where feminism's rubber really meets the road, you know. And then you've got these other people. You've got Chelsea Manning and Caitlyn Jenner as placeholders for this you know, generation of transgendered people who are saying, "No, I really feel like a woman. I really feel that I am a woman." And what I mean by that is a whole bunch of things, just including just a basic sense of uh, of identity and destiny, but also that I f- I think like a woman and I have feelings like a woman, and and. So I don't know. I mean, in a way, I feel like I could resolve those two things a little bit, uh, Irene. But but I don't really know how. Well, for me, it's sort of okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. For me, it's sort of like if if everyone just accepted that gender was fluid and there was a spectrum, then would would Caitlyn Jenner ever have felt trapped in the first place or felt like she was in the wrong body or in the first place? Could she have just existed somewhere along the spectrum and been happier all along? In th- instead of having to make some radical change and come out and do all this thing, uh, this whole thing, and by switching from one to the other so radically, are you just reinforcing all those stereotypes that you felt trapped by in I, the first I place? I think that's a really important yeah. point. Yeah, because I think that's a that 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 whole idea, especially in her case, uh, that having built a career and having a sort of whole investment in him, and then becoming her, mm-hmm. and and that is uh, that in itself creates an expectation. But I think that really um, the what you're talking about here are very sort of personal expressions that Caitlyn Jenner mm-hmm. has chosen to do that and has pushed buttons. But so what? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see that how it's such a threat to the sort well, of. But but I, but it but it is in the sense that you know that the idea of I was born this way. I mean, Burkett, but what does being born this way mean? Really? Well, uh, yeah. Okay. So well, also I. Burkett makes the point that the problem maybe is that men, the straitjacket that men are born into in terms of the expectations of, of regular heterosexual behavior are much more narrow for men than they are for women. So she, which I think is an interesting um, comment about how the world yeah, has I mean, changed since feminism. I can put pants feminism. on every day and no one accuses me of cross-dressing. But, yeah. you know, if a man goes out in a dress, so women have a much larger sort of... Right, but isn't it different to say I'm I was born that way versus I really want to do this? You know, I mean, it seems like there's there's a difference in in those two statements. But if you really want to do this, there has to be some sort of real commitment to it because you can't play at this and get away with it. Really, I mean, this is a real investment in changing who you are, in, in to, supposedly in concert with who you really felt you were all the way along. Well, and that's yeah. an authenticity to me. I, I agree with you. And then in that sense, maybe that's really the arguments men against Burkett. You know, maybe the whole sort of feminist, especially feminists of the 60s, uh, enterprise of saying that gender is completely cons- socially constructed has some limitations. Maybe but, that's what you're saying. Well, you're saying- I, I, I think that that came from the the, the principle of, of actually wanting to be equal. I mean, and not and women being dehumanized and, and not powerful, not getting positions of power. And, and the feminist movement was a reaction to empower women to say, well, you know, why aren't women in this place where we can equally compete for jobs? Why aren't we equally able to share the duties of raising children? Why is it just the mother 
who is responsible for this. And all of these things were sort of like the, the cutting edge of a change in power. And there were a lot of reactions against it. And I think that there's constant reaction even now. I mean, any time this issue comes up, there's a constant reaction of the power structure itself, which is sort of vested interests and largely male and and actually casting it usually in, in terms of sex. And one of the interesting things, just a little detail just recently, I think it was a couple of days ago, there was an announcement that the I think Boston City Hall was putting in a gender-neutral restroom uh, or in, in, in City Hall uh, that, that they felt that this was the best way to deal with the melt, many demands that, that they had from the public and that this would be a place where it just didn't matter. Anybody could go there with any identity, that, that it would also serve the needs of caregivers who were of different genders and so on. And, and, and it sort of took it away from it. It, it. That seemed to be sort of addressing the actual sort of nature of that particular yeah. problem. I was at I was at Bard College last weekend, and there was a bathroom like the only bathroom we had access to had a sign on the door. This bathroom is open to pers- people of any gender persuasion or identity. And the older people were much more inco- uncomfortable than the sure. younger people with that. Yeah. And I th- so maybe it is changing in that direction. When he was but a lad, yeah. my son used to refer to those as UNICEF bathrooms. <laughs> um, so um, to, uh, let me just sort of like add a couple of the other logs to the fire as we're talking about all this. Um, and I, I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on Tim Hunt. He's the Nobel laureate who had this whole thing. Um, uh, although I was, I qu- as I was reading this thing ab- about, um, and Kion, maybe you can get the Thomas Dolby thing ready. Uh, when I was reading this whole thing about this scientist who just absolutely, you know, couldn't have women around because he would just fall in love with them and they would fall in love with him. Um, I, I did uh, have this one particular musical reference. Yes, good heavens, Miss Yakamoto, you are beautiful. So, I, but let me just ask this one question. Two women today have said that they kind of felt sorry for him, you know, that he that he's like this old fuddy-duddy guy and he's a scientist and he just probably always talked this way and thought this way and, and just, you know, was, was completely clueless and now he's being pilloried. Does anybody have, have a tear of sympathy that they would shed I, for Tim Hunt? Or? I, I must None. say that I do. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. You don't either. Yeah. No, well, you don't. I mean, I do. You do. I don't know. I don't know if I feel sorry for him, but I'm kind of like, yeah, well, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he thought. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of those things is like, were you that surprised? But he's a person who's spoken in public before. Mm -hmm. He knew exactly what he was doing, Mm -hmm. saying this. And it's just this stuff popping out, this boiling sort of thing that that, you know, I think there's a lot of men who feel deeply threatened and when there's an opportunity when he feels he has power and he's got a lot of adulation and this is about him he can come out and say something loony like that mm-hmm. and I don't think he cared I don't, I don't think it was a. I, I think there was I, I don't think there's anything to be sympathetic about although he didn't okay, resign a post over it yeah. yeah. I mean, so you can be sympathetic to that, perhaps. But well, I mean, I guess the reason I feel sympathetic is because my father was like that. And um, and I and think your father was a scientist. And right? my father was a scientist. Yeah. And uh, my father, you know, sort of valued the work of women. But I think he really separated, you know, sort of like, well, sure, a woman could be a scientist. Yeah. But when I'm in the off, when I'm in the when I'm in the lab with her, I'm going to fall in love with her and she's going to fall in love with me. Like, it's like a certain kind of double standard of really believing. First of all, I, and so I don't know. Maybe uh, you you know better than I. So uh, so it's not him, it, but it's the 
the man himself, I don't know, but the idea of a man like that who actually believes that women are falling in love with him and can't see otherwise. He actually believes <laughs> that's it. That's what I thought. That I was like, who are you? Well, that's I, why I you're thought looking maybe, at him you know, and he's kind of grungy and like unwashed looking <laughs> yeah. and you're like, who's falling in love with you? Yeah, I mean, and, maybe he was an old but, geezer and, when he was 20. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. some guys are like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and that's what he reinforced in his mm-hmm. work. Uh, the, the question is suddenly coming out really publicly. I mean, you may know somebody who thinks like that, but somebody who actually comes out in public mm-hmm. and then says this in such an insulting way, especially a scientist who has had plenty of women in his own lab yes. who actually mm-hmm. did the work. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, and it he would say, though, that kind of man would say, that's different. You know, yeah, they're helping me out. She's helping me out, <laughs> you know. or did, did so, so In I between lascivious did looks? Not, I mean, what, yeah, did she not get did the women not get credit on the on the on the report for the sign for the work or did they I, I wonder yeah I you mean know, he's not it saying they were, they were just... incompetent he's basically saying I can't control myself is right. what right. he's saying right. and yeah. they can't control themselves around me because I'm just so studly but yeah. they can have their own lab and do their own work where I'm sure it'll be nice is really what he's saying which so is... we're back to male insecurity yeah. as the driver <laughs> but, yeah. which has to be reinforced mm-hmm. by excessively high salaries yeah. beyond the salary of women <laughs> because that makes me feel big mm-hmm. or the yeah but it's also the opposite of insecurity. It's the whole patriarchal system of saying, well, of course, I'm the one in charge. But patriarchy is insecurity. That's well, okay. where it comes yeah. from. Who yeah. runs the world? Male insecurity. <laughs> Who runs the world? Male insecurity. All right, we have to take a quick break. We'll be back with the stories of Hope Solo, but first, Rachel Dolezal from the NAACP in Spokane. And we're back with the nose. Teresa Kramer, Irene Papoulis, James Hanley, all with us today. Uh, we have to sort of these kind of uh, group of interlinked topics. And, and I was fascinated to see uh, that uh, in Eleanor Burkett's essay, which we've just been discussing vis-a-vis uh, not only Caitlyn Jenner, but also Tim Hunt, the, the scientist, that there are all these kind of linkages. I went back and read it again, and I noticed this uh, paragraph. I The I was born into the wrong body rhetoric favored by other trans people doesn't work any better and is just as offensive, reducing us to our collective breasts and vaginas. Imagine the reaction if a young white man suddenly declared that he was trapped in the wrong body and after using chemicals to change his skin pigmentation and crocheting his hair into twists expected to be embraced by the black community. Well, guess what? (laughs) I mean, it didn't happen exactly that way, but one of the stories uh, that... uh, that, that accosted us this week was the story of Rachel Dolezal. She is the head of the NAACP in the Spokane area. Um, as I said earlier, she has an African-American husband. She has four African-American siblings. But she does not appear to be, at least according to, to the kind of tests that people make, the, uh, the kind of Eleanor Burkett-like tests that people make, um, for this, she doesn't appear to really be black in any real sense. And one of the things that's been done to kind of damn her is to show pictures of her as a young girl when she really looked pretty darn white. Uh, and um, but she she since then has kind of altered her appearance, um, curled her hair, probably using a little bit of makeup that uh, darkens her skin a bit, uh, and has just kind of passed, as they say, uh, as an African American. Uh, she's been asked a few times whether or not she is an African American. I think we have a clip uh, here of that. Is that your dad? Yeah, that's that's my dad. 
this man right here is your father? Right there? Do you have a question about that? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I was wondering if uh, <laughs> if your dad really is an African-American man. That's a very, I mean, I don't, I don't know what you're implying. Are you African-American? I don't, I don't understand the question of, I did tell you that, yes, that's my dad. And you, he was unable to come in January. Are your parents, I'm are not, they white? I, I, re, I re, And you're here, sort of hearing Rachel just sort of walk away from the guy who's the guy who's pointing to uh, pictures on a photograph or images on a photograph and, and asking about that. Uh, Dolezal's mother, Ruth Ann Dolezal, said Thursday by phone from her home in northwest Montana that she has had no contact with her daughter in years. She said her daughter began to disguise herself in 2006 or 2007 after the family had adopted four African-American children. And Rachel Dolezal had shown an interest in portrait art. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but, um, <laughs> I, but I was also I thought that was the best detail, <laughs> yeah. actually. <laughs> I was also trying to think of I could think of a, another cultural reference point for this story and then one struck me. Wolfie? It's your birthday and it's time you knew. Naven, you're not our natural born child. I'm not. You were left on our doorstep. But we raised you like you were one of us. You mean I'm going to stay this color? <laughs> Naven, I'd love you if you were the color of a baboon's ass. <laughs> Of course, that was Steve Martin in The Jerk, where he was brought up short with the uh, revelation that he was white. So it's a slightly different thing. Um, Rachel probably knew she was white, and she decided to be black. I, I, I want to declare myself before I go out to the panel here. I sort of... I, I, maybe I don't feel that sorry for Tim Hunt, but I, I sort of feel sorry for this woman, and I feel like this is a crime without a victim. But I also expect to be brought up short, maybe by everybody, <laughs> for saying this. Go, who wants to go first? I, it's just weird. I, like I, I mean, this really just came out today, right? So I'm wondering what her motives were. I'm also wondering if everyone's gonna be like, "Oh, we knew she wasn't black." Like, what you know? <laughs> If everyone around her was just going to be like, we just, you know, what are you going to say to her? But yeah. it's also there's a strange parallel, though, because I because in one of the things that said her, I saw that her mother said she's always kind of identified mm -hmm. with African-Americans and she's always kind of felt like she was she she was one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a very interesting parallel. If you start saying born this way, she mm -hmm. sort of felt like she was born into the wrong skin color. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the impl that just feels different than from somebody saying they felt like they were born into the, own their, the wrong gender. Is that because we're more familiar now with people saying they've been born into the wrong gender or, you know, or what? I mean, are we moving toward an era where everybody's going to be able to sort of choose whatever race they want, choose whatever gender they want in 50 years? You know, I and, mean, and would that be so bad? Well, I think that that's something that has been around for a long time. I mean, many times, uh, like like it's again a matter of power. I mean, what about uh, you know racial laws that said if you had one eighth black blood that mm -hmm. this would make you described as black, even if you looked white. So, what is exactly the identity that's being legally created there? 
Um, uh, and what about somebody who's brought up, who, who uh, an adopted child brought up in a family who identifies with that family? Uh, just bec- and, and they identify racially because of the community they grew up in. So then I mean, what, how do you feel about her? her well, I mean, I mean it, it, the question is, is there any harm to that? I mean, that interview sort of like, you know, implies that there's something sort of nefarious going on. Um, and, and you can look at it and feel sad maybe that somebody feels that they can't stick with that. I would say that if you stick with it, uh, then then go along with it and actually face it and talk about it, you know, that you feel this identity and that you feel that's who you are. Uh, if, let's say, for instance, you've become a, an incredible legal uh, a, a legal expert who is incredibly good at dealing with discrimination cases and you become this head of the NACP branch and uh, you actually don't look like you're black. I mean, the question is, what is she doing with it? If she's hiding from it and she's making it a joke out of it, that's one thing you can feel sort of sad. But then again, I mean... But she's People's, certainly not doing that. No, she's not doing that. And identity is something that is so difficult to pin down. You can't. Uh, what about recessive genes, for example? That mm-hmm. that there are loads of cases. Yeah, there's those twins that pop up on the internet but, all the time, <laughs> where the, right. they are from a biracial family, and yes. one is like redheaded right. and pale as can be, and the other one is clearly yeah. of mixed race. And, exactly. And people are like, "What? Your sisters, but your twins? Like now, right. I'm really confused." And, and, and this I, is the sort of the Henry yeah. Louis Gates DNA thing, too, mm-hmm. right? That you know, when 23andMe and some of these other companies have surprised many people who thought they were really kind of genetically African American, mm-hmm. who've discovered actually, well, no, really, they really c- track closer genetically to white, and vice versa. That mm-hmm. what people think they are, and and what you know, what their genetics say about them, are those are sometimes very different things. And, and and what's the legal background to this? The legal background is actually dehumanization, ultimately, because remember that slaves were not full people. They were they, they, they were a fraction of a person, so they could be taken to a new place where they weren't really human, and therefore it was possible for the slave masters to be slave masters without guilt, in theory. I mean, that's the background to this, is making these identities. The, the Making identities like this is... An, an, an and people feeling they had to pass. Feeling, and, and, people and, and, pe- and, feeling they have to pass or yeah. they have to conform to some standard. Oh, you can't have those coils, you can't have the, f- the, the the hairstyle because this is an indication that you're not buying into our little system here. And so there's great hostility expressed to that. But ultimately, isn't, isn't it a matter of being true to yourself and actually having a legal background that says that that actually doesn't matter? Yes. And, I mean, as Wolfie is pointing out to me on the um, chat screen, she was lying. I mean, lying yeah. is kind of bad, right? There, there was this story. This just popped into my head now. Um, that I heard the comedian Tommy Davidson speaking on Mark Maron's WTF podcast. about, And he, through like a series of strange events, ends up being raised by um, a white family. He's black. And by a white woman and her two children, actually, you know, he moves in with them at a very young age. They live in the country. It might have actually been Wyoming or Montana, somewhere like that, and then move to um, the D.C. area. And he sort of realizes that he's black and different for the first time because he had grown up on a farm where he saw animals being born. And he's like, you can have a litter of kittens that has two white ones and a black one or whatever, or a horse that's white can have a black foal. And. I just assumed I was the black one in this family. You know, like he had no idea that that there was even this differentiation between race until he moved to a place where everyone was like, what are you why are you living with these white people? You know, like, and it was a very 
interesting story. Well, I mean, I, there may have be there may be in Spokane, you know, a person who's blacker than Rachel really wanted to be president of the NAACP. <laughs> in which case, maybe that person has a grievance here. I don't know. I well, mean, that's what I was wondering. I was like, did she feel she had to be black to move up through well, the this, ranks, and so yeah. that's why she's doing it, or is she just doing the, it actually, because in like, the early days whatever. of the NAACP, there were white presidents of chapters. Yeah, I'm not that's saying right. that's a good mm-hmm. thing or a bad that's thing, right. but there were. You know. But uh, the question, uh, go, going back to this suggestion of that maybe she's lying. Well, you could say you can make a judgment and say maybe she's lying to herself. You know mm-hmm. that that, mm-hmm. that or that she's lying to the public or something like that. But I'd say, what does that matter, really? It's your behavior and what you're doing. And if mm-hmm. you're doing a good job, then then that would be fine. But yeah. there's an indication to me uh, that, for instance, there's obviously a, a, a long-standing conflict between her and her mother. Um, I hate her mother. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we were alone. <laughs> we don't really but, know, you know, sort of what that involves. But it, it makes it hard to sort of be judgmental about that. And in a sense, she's you could say she's lying to herself. But like I say, I, I, it doesn't really matter. But it raises to me this whole idea that somehow you've got to be identified. You have mm-hmm. to be quantified. It, it's like the position of a woman and whether you have a vagina or whether you're trans, you know, like or you feel mm-hmm. like but a woman. is categorizing, putting mm-hmm. people in places because categorizing is an instrument of power. Well, I guess so. I guess I guess if if you think about categorizing, I'm just thinking about the you know I don't have a problem with this woman do you know but that you know the movie Aloha that just came out and there was a big you know there's a there's a character that's supposed to be Hawaiian American who's played by a white woman. Emma Watson, and then a lot of people objected to that, including me, thinking, yeah. no, it should be somebody who's actually racially Hawaiian. Well, if your theory is what, however you want to try to define yourself, you know, why not accept that? Well, there are reasons, and that also goes back to power. Right. Well, power. In, in an ideal world, that wouldn't matter. But the fact is that if people are powerless, and then, for instance, right. if, if you say that, uh, you know, you, you start carving out film roles, for example, major film roles, and somebody plays outside of their apparent racial identity, then you're certainly uh, that would only be viable and reasonable if opportunities were equal. And if when right. opportunities are not equal, then you're you're really uh, again it's an so expression of power the, and money. And then that goes back though to the trans idea, you know. So and, sh- if, and should Jeffrey Tambor be allowed to be the star of Transparent yeah. when he is not uh, yeah. in any way trans? Yeah. To me, well, I don't know. I don't even want to open that. I've already opened that can of worms once on the air, and I got in a lot of trouble for it. So um, <laughs> just very quickly here, because we're not, not going to have a lot of time to discuss this, but uh, I'll just put it in an anecdotal context. I was driving down to New Haven on Tuesday for some reason or other. My FM and and it wasn't working very well. I wound up listening to WTIC, the old station I used to work for. Uh, the time slot's now occupied by a sports show. There was this guy there really kind of trying to gin up this story that I didn't know very much about, that Hope Solo, who's the goalie for the U.S. women's soccer team, uh, had been involved in a, a pretty bad domestic incident, if you call it a domestic incident. I, I have questions about that, too. But she, anyway, she got into a fight with her her half-nephew, I guess, her half-sister's son, uh, and then with her half-sister as well. And it was a physical altercation. It may have turned pretty bad, although it doesn't sound like the kid had to go to the emergency room or anything. And he's, I think, 17, but, you know, pretty big kid. Uh, And anyway, it was being suggested by the host of this show for an hour, (laughs) for an hour, (laughs) that, that this represented some kind of double standard or hypocrisy. And I'm not 
saying he's totally wrong about this. And, and Richard Blumenthal, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, has kind of joined in and saying that, you know, Hope Solo, is she's no punishment is being meted out to her, at least by soccer. Um, she's going to be playing today against Sweden uh, that, uh, and that we've had this kind of national conversation about domestic abuse by male professional athletes, especially NFL players, and that it's, it's fundamentally wrong to treat Hope, Hope Solo differently. And so anyway, I mean, I, I, I throw it out there. I, I think I know what I think about this. But, um, but Irene, p- pick it up and, and, and let's all, I want to hear from all three of you. All right. Well, I just have to say the thing that I found most interesting is the thing that made her beat the guy up is that he said, you'll never know what it's like to be a mother because even if you did have children, they would have the most unhappy childhoods because you have no compassion. And her reaction to that was to beat him over the head with a broomstick <laughs> or whatever it was. And, you know, so I don't know. I think that's interesting. Nobody's saying she's a nice person. No, I mean, she, I guess... Th- so, like, he's pro- he's talking about this in context, right, with the NFL. and But the NFL has a problem and an image problem that they're dealing with, right? That's really mm. what that's about. And yeah. you're saying that where they've got a lot of players who are, you know, in trouble for beating up their partners and other people and God knows who else. And so that's a little bit different, whereas, you know... I'm guessing women's major league soccer doesn't have this huge image problem where their players are going around beating people up. Maybe they are, but I don't know about it. And they're probably more nervous about like yeah. not having negative publicity and mm-hmm. uh, 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 and it doesn't have the same money attached to it as it does in the NFL, for example, where yeah. there is uh, it, once it becomes an issue, then it becomes a big money issue right away. It's not just women's professional soccer, though. This is the U.S. women's soccer team. So mm-hmm. Dick Blumenthal uh, today has released a letter that he sent to the head of U.S. soccer asking him to conduct a thorough investigation into this incident. And in the interim, uh, Blumenthal is saying, I urge U.S. soccer to reconsider Hope Solo's position as an active member of Team USA. As boys and girls tune in to Friday's game, watching the women on TV as role models, it sends exactly the wrong message to start Hope Solo in goal. Um, and, you know, I mean, she was accused by her sister of, like, slamming this uh, young man's mm-hmm. head against the sidewalk and stuff I, like that. I agree with him. I mean, I think investigation, uh, you know, incidents like that should be investigated no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of agree to I agree with that part of it. Although listening to this particular sports talk show, I was thinking there's a false equivalency for some of the reasons you've alluded to. I mean, the, the NFL has a gigantic problem. Yeah. It's not just Ray Rice. It's every single franchise. The team that I root for, the Green Bay Packers, had one. And the New York Times did some really interesting reporting about how those women are treated, too. Mm-hmm. Whether they're the wives or the girlfriends, mm-hmm. they're often shunned and spurned, even sometimes by other player wives and pressured by the the, the sports information apparatus to not make the claim or recant it or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. the NFL has had a gigantic problem that they've been in denial about all, and we needed to have a national conversation about that, about the way the violence of the NFL sometimes bleeds into the lives of the players, by the way our addiction to the violence of the NFL makes us tolerate or, or be tempted to tolerate things like that. It's a huge, huge burgeoning problem, whereas the violence, uh, I mean, I'm not even sure this is a domestic incident. I think it's like, it could easily be be no, like two that. people had a fight and one of them lost. Yeah. You know? And one of, and they happen to be kind of distantly related to each other. Not every, you know, fight is a domestic incident even if it involves people who are kind of related to one another. Anyway, we have to stop so we'll have time for um I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> oh, we have to stop so we'll have time for endorsements. So let's do that.
I guess I should admit that I'm not really Canadian. I just like to say a boot. Goodbye, pretending to be Canadian. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Alex Dubin, Deborah Timms, and Jules Lefebvre. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Thomas Dolby. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff getting eaten up by a girls' soccer team, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday, the scramble looks at a controversial explanation of why Canadians are so boring. Hey, wait, I almost resemble that remark. And now, back to Colin. We are planning to devote a little part of Monday's show to this very controversial article in Vox about why Canadians are so boring. Anyway, uh, it's time for endorsements. Uh, it assumes facts, not in evidence, I, I admit. Uh, time for endorsements. Uh, James Hanley, uh, get things going for us. Um, the first thing, I did, wanted to mention a wonderful nursery plant place in uh, Mansfield that I've been going to for years. The people who run this, uh, it's called Tri-County Greenhouse on Route 44. I get all my plants there, but the people who run it are really wonderful, and uh, it's a great place to go. I highly recommend it. As one who I like a garden, I love my garden, but I get a bit overwhelmed going to some of these massive garden centers. This is a great small place. And the other thing is um, at Cine Studio, we're showing uh, About Ellie, which is a thriller directed by Asghar Fahadi, the man who made A Separation, which was the Academy Award-winning uh, feature uh, a couple of years ago. Um, it's an amazing film, really good, playing through next Thursday. Well, I really want to see that, actually. Yeah. I've heard big things about it. Yeah, me too. Um, I have two, oh me, I have two, um, two you. beach reads. Um, one of them is by Dan Pope, um, who's from West Hartford, and I heard him read from it last night. I haven't read the book, but I heard him read a, a couple of substantial sections. It's called Housebreaking, and it takes place in West Hartford, and uh, even though it's not called West Hartford and the Crown Market is in it and it looks like a fun read. I've, I've read it. it. I wrote it up in Great Barrington. And it's a very, it's a fun vacation read and yeah. really good sort of nice uh, human stories. Yeah. And um, Haruki Murakami, who's a Japanese writer, wrote Colorless Suzuku. It's a terrible title to remember for English speakers, but <laughs> Colorless Suzuku Tazaki and His Years of Pilgrimage by Haruki Murakami is a, a lovely, really, uh, I think, lovely novel about sort of the, 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 psycho the, the psychology of looking back at your past and thinking about friend, uh, friends from the past. And it, but, and it also is a very quick read, unlike some of his books. All right. And Teresa Kramer. I've got a couple of podcasts that I recently started listening to to endorse. One is called Lore, and it's this guy just sort of telling you spooky stories and the, and the history behind them. And one actually about elves includes a little spat that happened down in Montville in Connecticut oh. over, um, <laughs> over a, you know, they couldn't put a, you know, apartment complex somewhere or something because the Mohegan said there were elves living in yeah. the hill or something. Well, wasn't the head, the head of the elves group, it turned out he wasn't actually an elf? What? what? I thought the head <laughs> the head of the elves advocacy group, oh, he turned out he, not to actually be true. an elf. Yeah, yes, he, he was a dwarf. <laughs> he said it's a socially yeah. constructed identity. Yes. You know? <laughs> and then there's another one out uh, that I am a little more tepid about, but it's called um, The Mystery Show, and it's Starly Kine from This American Life just sort of solving these random mysteries people call her with. So one was just like this woman who'd written a book, saw Britney Spears carrying it in her arm once, but no like no, no one read this book. Like, it was very unpopular, and she wanted to know how Britney Spears got this book, so Starly Kine, like, fights her way to Britney Spears to find out how she got this book, and it's just like these weird stories she tells. 
I know because a whole bunch of us were at uh, the serial thing mm-hmm. on uh, Wednesday, whatever that, Wednesday night mm-hmm. um, at the Bushnell that you also are listening to Undisclosed. I am also listening to Undisclosed. It's very, I think it's, uh, it's very fascinating and it's completely different. It's really dry and lawyerly and kind of boring and I have to listen to everything twice because I'm like, I missed something in there. But I didn't think they needed my help. They're, they're, they're already they're at the fine. top right. of the list. They didn't need your endorsement. Yeah. All right. So what have I got to endorse? Well, first of all, um, I wanted, I've been asked to mention that Irene Papoulos will be one of the storytellers at the mouth next Friday. Not tonight. Next Friday. That will be the 19th uh, at the Mark Twain House, 730, $5 admission. The theme is on vacation. Stories about what went down when you put your feet up. Um, also, on that day, we will move the nose down to New Haven, as we occasionally do. We'll be in the lobby of the study, uh, and we will have a Mark Oppenheimer, Benny Klein, and then from the New Haven Festival of Arts and Ideas, one of the performers there, Roger Gwenver Smith, who's doing this kind of one-man show called Rodney King. So anyway, we'll do come visit us. We audience is encouraged, and all that kind of stuff. We'll be in it's the study. It's on Chapel Street between York and Park, uh, and it's the lobby there. And they're great people, and they're very nice to us. Um, so uh, a couple of thing, other things that are sort of actually closer to real endorsements. Well, as long as I'm on the Festival of Arts and Ideas, the following night, the 20th, Kurt Elling will be singing, um, I think for free, uh, I think outdoors, uh, at the Festival of Arts and Ideas. I, I personally think Kurt Elling is the greatest living jazz singer, and not the greatest jazz singer ever, but the greatest one that's left that I can think of anyway, and just jaw-droppingly talented and innovative, and so that would probably be worth a trip down there. If you can't think of anything else to do on the Festival of Arts and Ideas, and I'm sure you can, uh, you should think about doing that. And then I'll just, I guess I, I have a little bit of extra time here, so I'll just quickly say, so <laughs> I've been spending a lot of time going back and forth to New Haven this week, so one of the things I had an opportunity to do was to go down on Monday night and um, take over a couple of tickets for a really kind of exclusive performance by Audra McDonald, uh, who was doing a thing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Long Wharf Theater. And I was tired, and I'd already been up and down the highway a bunch of times, and I was thinking, eh, why don't I even take these? Um, and so I go, and I, 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 and she's just a divinity. I mean, she's just, I just, I am, I mean, there's a reason she's won six Tonys, and nobody else has ever done that, and she's, uh, her voice is unbelievable. Her choice of songs are, were, it was unbelievable. The, the connective you know, they, used, they sometimes call it patter. It's so not patter when she does it. She just absolutely says very real and interesting things to set up these songs and connect them to one another and can connect you to her. And then her voice is just, you know, it's a thing from God. It's just this unbelievable thing. So I was just so happy if you ever get a chance to hear Audra McDonald and I'll quickly also say that most of her repertoire came from more or less the American Songbook, you know, located somewhere between 1923 and 1953. Um, But she does, she's always made an incredible effort to support new songwriters of the kind that we covered on the Betsy Kaplan uh, show from uh, from the Goodspeed. And she did this song called, the I think it's called The Song of Otter and Bear by Shana Taub, a young songwriter. And, and it just, everybody cried. It starts out like it's kind of a children's book about an otter and a bear, but then it turns out to be this story of a couple, uh, of any couple, uh, going through their lives together. And really, I was, I was wiping my own eyes and look, looking around and just watching everybody, the other 350 people wipe their eyes too. So anyway, Otter McDonald, she is a divinity. And thanks very much to uh, the uh, demigods who are here also as well. James Hanley, Irene Papoulis, Teresa Kramer will be back on Monday with Canadians. Farmington, yeah, 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 on the radio. She'll on the radio. On the radio, baby. You'll be talking about the town. I'm coming back in 
You guys lay off Rachel Dolezal, all right? She misunderstood that the NAACP stands for National Appropriation Association for Caucasian People. It's an honest mistake.